Fine Pairs New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter. From Toronto, Canada, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Joanna, it sounded like you were unsure <laughs> if you're in Toronto. <laughs> you're like, Toronto, Canada? I forgot where I was. <laughs> <laughs> this might be, this, this is a rare international podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, We've done a few. Adam and I did one in Italy. I know. I did one live from, from uh, Chile. Yeah, that's right. We've been all over, but Joanna taking it up to the Great White North. <laughs> yes, I'm here for um, a family visit with my partner's family. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. My my most important question about visiting Canada: Have you had Tim Hortons yet? I have. Yes, Timbits, or did you get something else? Some Timbits and some yeah. coffee, but I don't know what the special coffee order. You is know, they here. have Tim Hortons in New York, right? Yeah, I know. They do. It's still fun. Mm-hmm. More, you, more question you could ask, like, have you had poutine? No poutine yet, but I have had ketchup chips. Oh, those oh. are so good. They're the best. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> Canada, man. Lay's flavored ketchup chips. Lay's ketchup flavored chips, not Lay's flavored, because that's the right. <laughs> yes, yeah, you don't have, it's not potato chip flavored ketchup. It's ketchup no. flavored potato well, chips. Well, so Joanna, like, have you, let's, let's start with you. Like, what have you been drinking? What, what have you been up to now that you're, you know, you're north of the border hanging out with moose? Um, so before, I, before we left, I did make, um, make, mix up a batch of, uh, John Clark Gennetti's martinis, uh, on Friday night before we headed up North. Um, oh. so that was really good. This is from, sorry, this is from the most recent cocktail. Yeah, I episode. know. <laughs> I was curious. Um, how much does Tim pay you to talk <laughs> to his, his podcast every single week? I'm supporting. Okay. <laughs> Joanna aiming for that guest appearance on, on Cocktail College. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, but anyway. the, the martini did sound pretty delicious. It was good. I, I found a bottle of Sip Smith gin ah. uh, in, in my parents' uh, garage, so I used that, and it was very good. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and then any things that you've been up up? Yes. North? Yeah. Actually, yes. Yeah. So, uh, we went to um, like a brewery downtown. I don't know, like a bar. Eastbound Brewing Company, and I had some good beers there. But actually, what wait, the one of the first um, trips we made was to the local LCBO, yeah, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, um, which I love. It's like the best place ever. It's just a massive like liquor and beer store, and it's pretty much the only place you can buy alcohol in Ontario. And um, we got some Steam Whistle, which is you know some of my favorite beer. Oh, um, in, oh. in Ontario, yeah, they had a harvest lager or something, which was not flavored or anything. It was just kind of like an amber. No flavors. <laughs> no flavors. My, my father-in-law was like, does that have like pumpkin in it or something? And I was like, no. <laughs> yeah, don't good. worry. Yeah. <laughs> this is the pure shit. Um, <laughs> very cool. Very cool. And Zach, I mean, I don't know if you've had time to drink. It seems like you. Oh, yes, I have. A child. <laughs> so, uh, so what have you been up to, man? Uh, well, yeah, you know, having a kid, baby Lila came uh, on Friday. Yeah. That was pretty exciting. I'm so disappointed you didn't name your child Vine Pair, but whatever. <laughs> it's It's been suggested. You yeah, someone suggested Cocktail it. College, Jabal, but, you know, I kind of decided not to go that route. Uh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, no, uh, it's funny. We We brought a... So we brought a half bottle of sparkling wine with us and had that in the hospital room uh, kind of the next day. You know, it's funny with kids where you don't know when they're going to come exactly. So you don't kind of know exactly when you're going to be a little bit less 
or, you know, just kind of stressed out and ready to relax and celebrate a little bit. So that ended up being lunch the day after. She well, was it's born. funny that you say that because, you know, uh, my buddy Ryan is, um, is a doctor and he works at Greenwich hospital uh-huh. in, uh, in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I guess they started a promotion like a few years ago and now it's become like a really big deal that, to encourage you to give birth there. So they get a lot uh-huh. of people, especially from like the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side, who will venture to Greenwich Hospital to give birth. Uh-huh. Um, they give you a steak and champagne dinner after the <laughs> Oh my God. Wow. Wow. It's hilarious. And I never heard of this one. I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I definitely ate hospital meatloaf. That was what yeah. I got, which was, you know, whatever. <laughs> they do you they do a little celebratory meal, but it definitely comes with Martinelli's apple cider and not anything that I would actually want to drink. Yeah. And so that, and then, you know, it's actually been kind of, uh, other than that, kind of quiet on the drinking front, uh, for the most part, I had a little bit of scotch when I got home. Um, we have, um, I kind of over the pandemic splurged on bulking out the very high end whiskey, uh, in particular selection at home. And so, uh, this is some Macallan 18, which is always tasty and one of my wife's favorites. So we had a little bit of that the other night, but really it was the sparkling wine and just, uh, you know. Getting getting used to life with two kids, which man, it is it is wild. What one was a lot, two is like it's a whole nother thing. <laughs> How about you, Adam? So, gosh, it's been a it's been a crazy like since we recorded last week. It's been just nutty. Um, you know, <laughs> I, it just I, feel I like, assume you finished the rest of the flannel pack, right? Right? Yeah, you slammed it. No, so it was Naomi's birthday last weekend. So, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, Happy so birthday. yeah, thank you to her for her. <laughs> it's like thank you for yeah. Anyways, uh, so so first, um, you know, uh, we went out on uh, Saturday night, and well, first we went to like our favorite place for lunch, brunch, dinner, etc. Miss Ada in our neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, and had just like amazing food. And there, I had a really delicious cocktail, which was a frozen jungle bird. Oh, not never had before. So I I enjoy a jungle bird and frozen. It was actually quite excellent. Can I ask a question about this really yeah. quick? What was the consistency like? Because I find like with um thick, <laughs> that that's kind of what right. I was asking. It was, it was not watery. It was like cool. very much like solidly delicious slush. Yeah, well, that's such a hard thing to get right with <laughs> with with you know alcoholic frozen alcoholic drinks because it's so hard to get them. It can be really hard to get the consistency right because alcohol obviously freezes at a lower temperature than uh than water yeah it was good i don't know what they did but it was good uh and then i'm not a really good uh no no no, that's fine i think we've discussed this before right like i'm a terrible frozen drink cocktail maker like every time i try it's it's really hard to do at home comes out like super chunky or watery never never good uh and then that night we went to dinner she and i at fausto which was awesome and you know we've had uh Joe Campanelli on the podcast early on in COVID. Uh, it was really cool to like go to the restaurant now that's reopened. Um, the food was delicious. And, you know, at the, uh, at the end of the night, I had some Amaro, which was nice. good. Mm. Uh, and then the next day we took a cemetery tour because Naomi really wanted to like hang out in a cemetery, which I thought was pretty funny. I know on her birthday, I was like, well, you know, appropriate, I guess. Uh, <laughs> And uh, and we went with Josh and another friend of ours and then went across the street to this really cool um, Mexican taco spot 
and we had frozen painkillers and they were oh. awesome oh. really awesome can and you explain to me what you what you do on a cemetery tour are you looking at like the the graves of famous people or yeah, what so like so so oh, okay. it's greenwood cemetery so it's like it's okay. the most famous cemetery in new york Okay. And it was actually New York's first park. So hmm. when it was built, it was built as a park cemetery. Um, I guess they, they were all the rage in the 1800s. Um, and so it actually existed before Central Park. And it used to get okay. – uh, I've learned all this on the tour. It used to get uh, upwards of like – what was it? 600,000 or something visitors a year. And wow. so – they realized that it should that New York needed a park, and so mm. um, they a bunch of a very wealthy New Yorkers convinced, you know, the mayor, et cetera, that as they were developing, because everyone you know lived in Lower Manhattan at the time, and then parts of Brooklyn, mostly Brooklyn Heights, um, they convinced uh, the mayor that as they were developing up the island of Manhattan, they should save land for a park, and that's how Central Park came to be. Oh, interesting, um, because of the success of Greenwood, and so yeah, there's some really cool people. Who are there? Leonard Bernstein, uh, Basquiat, huh. you know, some I think other. I have really- some relatives buried in there. Really? You should. I go. do. I think so. <laughs> cool. It's it's really it's just, it's a. Hey, really- you didn't visit the Chirino, uh wing. No. <laughs> lots of really cool old mausoleums. Uh, it was fun. It's it's like a it's a fun activity. There's lots of people taking tours. We did like obviously just like the cemetery tour. Then there's people on a mushroom tour. And I asked if they you have if you're are you on mushrooms when you take the tour? Or are you there to look at mushrooms? It turns out you're there to look at mushrooms, not to mm. be. But the people who were on that tour, I think they probably were doing both. Mm-hmm. On the topic of you uh, questioning my use of psychedelics on the podcast previously, yeah, it is psilocybin and such have been uh, decriminalized here in Seattle. So in the future, I could be. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Let us know first, okay? I yeah, we'll see. We'll see. If we get too deep into the Friday podcast. Figure out things to drink. If I'm drinking mushroom tea, you'll know we're uh, totally we've run out of ideas. Um, so this week's episode uh is all about fire damage, basically. So Zach, this is this is a conversation you've been wanting to have. So why don't you set us up? Absolutely. So a thing that I've heard from a number of different producers, kind of up and down the West Coast, is uh, you know. A lot of concern and fear that wine buyers, sommeliers, and and consumers more broadly are going to look at this 2020 vintage and essentially write it off from all of the West Coast potentially. And obviously, there have been vintages in recent memory, 17 and 18, with with more limited fire damage, but the scope of it was pretty big in 2020. And I think that so the concern they've sort of expressed is like. Instead of doing what you would assume buyers in particular would do with any wine and try it before they make up a mo- their mind, that they're just going to sort of write off, like I said, the entire vintage. And, you know, some of that might be fear mongering on the part of producers who are, you know, understandably concerned about their livelihood and the future of their wineries or whatever. But I do think it's interesting. And I wanted to, to get um, a sense from both of you as we sort of set off in this conversation of like, do you... You know, like when, when we're thinking about how VinePair will cover these wines, right? You know, we're mostly talking about red wines, so most of them are not yet released, but they will be hitting the market in the next six months or so in some cases. Some of them already have, but a lot of them will be hitting the market in the next six months to a year. I feel like it does present an interesting challenge to all of us. Like, you know, how do we approach wines where maybe more than any other time in the past, people are going to be kind of looking to see if they can find smoke taint? I think it's it's a tough you know, it's a tough question to ask because there obviously was horrible damage. Yeah. Um, some people 
went ahead and threw their vintages out. Other people didn't. And I feel like this puts the producers who didn't in a really tough position because you could be 100% positive that your wine doesn't have smoke taint, right? Like you're the, you're the winemaker. You tasted the wines throughout their entire process of fermentation. You put them into, you know, oak to age and you could know deep down that the wines don't have smoke taint. Yeah. But, but doesn't it change sometimes? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm even more like concerned about is that I think that there will be a lot of people who call who say we don't care what you say bullshit mm-hmm. because there is so much wine that has been dumped that people assume that everyone got fucked. Yeah. And so if you're the one winery that didn't for whatever reason, maybe you picked earlier than other people, maybe you are in an area of, you know, the West Coast that didn't experience smoke tape in in such a pervasive way, it may not matter. Yeah. Because just the bias that I think people will have against it, people in the know yeah. will have against it is going to be so bad that like it, there's going to be – I think there, there's going to be a lot of people who become very defensive. And yes, a lot of people it's who – definitely killed, happening. <laughs> you know? And, and I don't know how you prevent that. Like – because look, if I was one of the winemakers that was forced to – you know, dump my wines or dump my wines, be, maybe not be forced, but because I was like, I can't put this out. Like, it's just not going to be high quality. I'd be annoyed if there was someone that escaped that fate. Yeah. And I would question how they did. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you deal with that, right? So it's just going to be not a great situation. A, a complicating factor in this is that we, our understanding scientifically and, and for sort of winemaking wise of smoke taint is still pretty rudimentary. And so it's very hard. I mean, you know, you talked about Adam and then you kind of asked Joanna, like at at many points in the process, wineries have tried to detect, diagnose whether smoke taint is present in their wines. And the honest truth is like the, the technology for assessing that is not great. It's being worked on, of course, as this becomes more and more prevalent, but it's not necessarily as fleshed out as you would want. And Individual humans have really different thresholds for when they can detect smoke taint. It's also complicated because some of the flavors that we associate with smoke taint can also be present in certain ways and certain fashions in certain wines through other means. You know, the the flavors and aromas naturally present in the wine, flavors and aromas from oak, etc. And so it's a very messy, complicated situation. And some wineries undoubtedly said, you know what, we don't you know, we don't want to, we would rather dump an entire vintage or, you know, only make rosé and white wine or, you know, do whatever, than put wine out that down the road, at some point, someone might open and say, this is tainted. And that becomes a more of a PR nightmare, especially if you're a really high-end winery, or, you know, you get a, a, a prominent critic or something to say that, like, now that wine is worthless, basically. And, and as Joanna asked, and I think it's an important point to note here, because our, our understanding of how smoke taint um, kind of presents in wine is still not fully fleshed out. It's possible that wineries could have in, in absolute best faith thought their wines were, their, their grapes were fine, thought their wine was fine through vinification, through aging, put it in bottle. And we might find in three months, six months, a year that maybe it's not like these compounds can, can become more prominent as the wine ages. And it's just, it's a huge 
mess. I don't know, Joanna. I mean, do you have do you have sort of a visceral response to any of this? Like, if someone were to say to you, you know, here buy this twenty twenty wine, like, are you going to just kind of recoil from it if it's from somewhere that might have had you know a reasonable chance of smoke taint? No, I don't. I mean, knowing what I know because of obviously this job, and I feel like a lot of people probably, a lot of ordinary folks probably don't know about smoke taint and how it will affect wine. I feel like I'd be more curious to try it mm. and to see myself than to just, uh, you know, abstain from buying 2020 wine. Does that calculus change, though, if we're talking about a $200 bottle of Napa Cabernet instead of mm. a $20 <laughs> bottle of random question. red wine from question. somewhere in California? Um, yes, probably. I would maybe avoid that then. <laughs> yeah, because I think that's the that's one of the areas where I think we're seeing the most. Yeah. I mean, certainly where you've seen a lot of producers sort of basically say, like, either we're not producing a 2020 vintage or, like, we will only release this wine if we are 100% certain that it, there's no smoke taint. Adam, what have, what have you heard? Because obviously you got you were in California not that long ago and you have lots of connections down there. Are you hearing the same kind of concern that, that people are just worried that even if they think their wine is totally fine, people aren't going to buy it? I mean, I think that, you know, from being out in California, they're just – there's a lot of discussion amongst producers as to are people who are not dumping this vintage, like basically telling the truth mm. or like, did they, did they adequately test? Right. So like, there's a lot of like people also, you know, trying to claim that certain people's testing methods may or may not have worked. Right. So like, you know, the only way to have really tested it is if you had access to a really advanced lab and like, you know, those, that lab was so backed up. It's, it sounds a lot like COVID, right? Like, and so the results were coming back, you know, days later and you would have, and like it almost too late where like, if you were going to make the decision to pick, you just had to pick. Um, there's a few wineries that have their own labs and were able to do that, but those are also like the bigger companies. And what I mean, bigger companies are like just the larger wine organizations. Yeah. Um, so, so maybe, maybe they they had more access to information. There's other people who, you know, were claiming, oh, well, we were crushing and smelling the buckets and tasting the juice in the buckets and trying to see what it was like. And, and you know, was there actually smoke taint? We don't know and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, I think that everyone's really torn. And I think, you know, the easy sort of answer was, okay, just dump. Because we don't want, you know, we don't want this, we don't want the scenario to occur that you just questioned, Zach, which is like, well, are you going to buy this $200 bottle? Yeah. You no. Know? I think you might see others who discount this vintage. Maybe. Right. So it's like, so maybe it's not, a t maybe that vintage is not 200. Maybe it's, you know, 125 and like, take your, take your pick, right. Take, take your own risk. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we're telling you it's good, but like, because we can't Guaranteed. make you feel super comfortable, we're not going to, yeah, we're not going to charge you 200 like we normally would. And then there were people that picked early. So I, like, I, I think everyone still doesn't really know what to say or do. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think we will get 2020s that ultimately come into the office. I think yeah. you know, we will taste them and we will see for ourselves. I think there's probably a lot of, you know, critics who are already tasting some initial stuff, you know, cause not everyone dumped. I mean, no, definitely you know, not, you know, not everyone dumped. So, you know, Didn't I think a lot of people also pivot to making rosé instead. Some people did. They yeah. Could salvage the grapes for that. Yep. Because they could pick early enough, so they did. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, that's also, you know, part of what some people claim is that, you know, it really, smoke tank truly comes out the strongest in the reds. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, there were people that pivoted that way. I don't, it just really remains to be seen. Like, where is this gonna really net out? And, you know, how much was this vintage truly affected? And how much are we going to see people just say, don't buy at all? And this to me leads me to a, a question I wanted to ask the both of you, because a thing that I was like that was interesting to me in my wine journey to learn about is like when you for me at least when I first started learning about wine you know you kind of get taught that that vintages matter right that consecutive years in a growing region can be different and that the wines as a result can be quite different and and you know maybe you even if you're studying or you're just kind of this kind of person you you learn about all oh, these are the great vintages and you know you maybe even get a vintage chart and you know these things all exist and the more i tasted wine the more i learned about wine the more i realized like yeah, okay, sure. There are maybe some generalities you can make about vintages. And there are places in the world where vintages do matter more than others, you know, more kind of marginal climates, you're going to have a bigger difference between the sort of style of wine that's possible in a cold vintage versus a warm vintage. And in certain other places, there's just less variability for a variety of reasons. But the thing that I that I really have learned, I think, in my time as a wine professional, is that frankly, like, anything more, more uh, general than certainly a small area, if not an individual vineyard or winery, it's just too big of a generalization. And I think that we're going to see that with 2020. But frankly, I think we're going to see that with we're seeing that with Europe in 2021. I mean, a lot of adverse weather. Um, but but adverse weather is hard to hard to pin down because, you know, vineyards a couple of miles away can be affected really differently. It can rain or hail really heavily in one spot and not in another. You can be protected from wind and cold in certain ways. And and the thing that this whole conversation about this 2020 vintage has made me think is that like, it might be an opportunity for some of these wineries and some of these producers and, and frankly, buyers and consumers to get away from lazy shorthand around vintages because I just... I don't think it really serves anyone well to say, oh, you know, 2020 was a bad vintage in California. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? Like, you might have noticed, but California is a large place and they grow grapes all over it. And and even in narrower regions, even in Napa or, or Sonoma or whatever, like, there's so much difference from, from you know, individual sub-AVA to individual sub-AVA or even within those sub-AVAs. I just, I don't know, it, it brought to mind this sort of frustration I have where people want a pithy two sentence summary of a vintage for an entire region. And and I'm curious for for you, Joanna, in particular, I think as someone who's kind of, you know, continuing to well, I mean, we're all continuing to learn, of course, but maybe, you know, learning about these things, like when you hear someone talk about, oh, it was a good vintage or a bad vintage, like what what does that make what does that how do you think about that? Yeah, I just I feel like it's kind of like I understand that that's a thing in wine and that it's something that people who care about wine and who are really into fine wine especially care about but i i just feel like it's kind of just in the way that you're talking about it zach seems very nonsensical to me mm-hmm. but yeah it's certainly i mean it's certainly not something i if i if someone tells me that we're having a really wonderful vintage and i have the opportunity to try something like that great um but i, I certainly wouldn't you know turn away from other vintages as a result of that i guess and i guess to be clear I mean, this is a bigger conversation, like 99.9% of the people who drink wine are going to see 2020 on the label and buy the wine because they don't, because they don't care. No, I'm dead serious. It's not a maybe Zach. It's a 100%. 
so maybe some of the top wine sh- shops won't take in the $250 Napa cab. Uh-huh. But there's going to be a lot of 2020 wine from the West Coast that is sold because oh, the absolutely. majority yeah. of wine consumers don't look at vintages. Sure. And mm-hmm. you know, if there's a a beverage director, a you know, a buyer, et cetera, who trusts their rep and the rep is saying, Hey, you know, these wines are fine. We, you know, we've tasted them and then they taste them and they bring them in. They're going to sell them. What the producers that mm-hmm. won't be able to sell their wine will be the producers who are either primarily DTC brands, right? So mm. big, you know, wineries that have massive wine clubs. Yeah, they're fucked. I mean, if you have a huge wine club right now and you were an allocated wine in California and people didn't really get to taste your wine before, that is a much different consumer. Again, that is like the point. 2% of the yeah. wine drinking public, but that is a very different consumer who normally trusted you, but now it's done enough reading to say, I've heard that sh- this is bad yeah. and th- this year was bad. They're not going to buy. And, you know, certain high end wine lists may not buy. But again, I actually don't think that's 100% true because the buyers at those high end wine lists at these top restaurants will taste the wines. And if they don't think that the wine, if they still think the wines are sound, they will bring them in. So, it really is only going to affect, the more I think about it, a very small percentage of the super high-end fine wine market. And the rest of the wines, either they're fine or consumers aren't going to care and it's character. Like I just I, – I do yeah. think the more you really think about it because most people don't look at the date. Like I mean I think if you ask most people like what was the best vintage in the last 20 years in Napa, they couldn't tell you. They wouldn't know. They wouldn't care. What was the best vintage yeah. in Bordeaux in the last 20 years? Like only super high-end collectors are looking at it and most people are going to still want to drink California wine and most people know that Napa – so maybe maybe whatever's permitted is blended in or whatever. But like the wines will still sell. That's why, that's why a lot of people did – I mean we're really getting to the end of this, right? That's why a lot of people didn't dump. Yeah. And there's too much money at stake. Like, you know, there aren't, it's a, it was a, in a lot of ways, a real privilege if you could afford to dump your 2020 vintage. I mean, right. like, it, yeah. you know, and, and even those people who dumped it, like, you know, I'm not convinced that they're not figuring out, you know, maybe it's something, a second label, non-vintage labeled, or, you know, they're not, they, not all that wine went down the drain or went to, you know, sort of the, the gray market for, for, you know, uh, bulk juice or whatever, like, I don't know. There might be a lot of like, um, you know, private label smoke tainted wine out there, though. That actually might be the worst place to drink wine from 2020. I would be very dubious about private label California wine from 2020. So you're saying like Wink should be careful on their in their IPO? <sighs> I mean, I don't know. I, I that's another that's a topic for another day. We can talk about how oh, man, uh, I've been digging into their S1. They uh, yeah, all their all their juice is private label. So I'm just uh-huh. oh no, of course, you know. It was like a, it was a, it's like a bull market, but with smoke. I don't know. Yeah, but. who knows? This is interesting, though. Uh, yeah, I'll be, I'll be curious when, when, when the twenty twenties come out. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely very interested to try them. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I want to hear if you are a producer or something like that, and you, you have, you know, I would be curious to know if you have concerns about this or, or what you've done. You know, what, what you have done to, to try and assuage those concerns for your, you know, your distributing distribution partners, your buyers, your, your, you know, wine club members, et cetera, if they've raised them. Because I think even if you're right, Adam, that not very many people have those concerns, the people who do have them are some of the most important people to these wineries. They're the ones who are, you know, controlling a lot of the, the decisions to buy or not buy. Um, and if you're the purchaser for a large distribution company and you're making a call on whether to buy, you know, 10,000 cases from a winery, you know, that makes a big difference to that winery most of the time. Totally. 
Well, uh, very interesting conversation. Joanna, enjoy Canada. And uh, and Zach, enjoy the child number two. And I'll talk to you both. <laughs> Bye, guys. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.